What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Robert Greene is the author of the New York Times bestsellers The 48 Laws of Power The Art of Seduction The 33 Strategies of War The 50th Law and Mastery In his newest book, The Laws of Human Nature, he turns to the most important subject of all, understanding people's drives and motivations, even when they are unconscious of them themselves. Drawing from ideas and examples of Pericles, Queen Elizabeth I, Martin Luther King Jr., and many others, Green teaches us how to detach ourselves from our own emotions and master self-control. He shows how to develop the empathy that leads to insight how to look beyond people's masks, and how to resist the conformity to develop your singular sense of purpose. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or Whatever else you do for fitness, no matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. So it's 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. Uh, I mean, I know, Robert, you're someone who's created different routines that work well for yourself. Are there any non-negotiables that you've done so far today? What do you mean by that? Is there anything you do pretty consistently every single day just to kind of get yourself in the groove, whether that be some form of meditation, a diet, anything along those lines? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in general, writers are creatures of habit. We have to be because it requires a great amount of discipline to just sit down and, and write instead of going outside or being distracted. So I'm a total creature of habit. I meditate. I get up in the morning. I meditate for 
35 minutes in the same position, same place facing a window, doing pretty much the same type of meditation every morning. Um, I have, um, you know, a certain kind of diet that I'm on and breakfasts are pretty much the same. Yeah. So, um, I don't deviate this very much. It's actually, I probably would be, would benefit me to occasionally break up these routines, but I find rituals and routines very soothing to me. So, so you mentioned you don't deviate from this often. How long have you been doing this specific routine? Well, I've been meditating, I can say, exactly for about eight and a half years um, doing that, not deviating from it. It's, you know, maybe one day here or there when I'm on an airplane, I've had to, I couldn't do it, but I pretty much catch up the next day. So I'm doing that for eight and a half years. The diet has been a work in progress. It has evolved. But, um, you know, probably the last 20 years or so, it's been like this more or less. Um, but writing habits have always been, since I did the 48 Laws of Power over 20 years ago, it's pretty much the same. Just after I've done all the research, the writing will take place like an hour, two hours in the morning, and then the afternoon, like 4 to 7 p.m., which I call my golden hours. And so that's been set for well over 20 years now. I love the verbiage around the golden hours. How long did it, <laughs> did it take you to define that, that that was your true time that, that you do your best work in? Well, you know that when you're young, I mean, we're either morning people or evening people. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon. It's almost like, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Um, are you vegetarian or, or omnivore or whatever? So I knew since college that I worked best at night that I'm, I have a very slow metabolism or thyroid issues, perhaps so in the morning. I'm very sluggish. I don't really get going till like 11 in the morning. And then, uh, and then about four or five o'clock, I, I, I start getting some good ideas. My mind picks up and, uh, I really like that time of day. I find a kind of a magical time of day. Things seem to be coming to life. Um, so that's always. That's always been my pattern since since college, you know. I, I love different people's perspectives around idea generation. And I'm interested, what are you doing around 3 p.m.? You say the ideas start to come to you. What, what happens that time of day for you? Well, it, if I have lunch at, let's say, 1, 1.30 or a little earlier, after lunch, I always take a nap. So at 3 o'clock, I could be taking a nap. Um, but if not... Um, you know, I'm starting to get ready to, to work. Maybe I'm looking on the internet, answering a few emails. But now with the stroke, all of this has been slightly disrupted because I'm doing at least three hours of therapy a day. And so my afternoons are taken up with extensive hand, arm, leg therapy, treadmill, uh, ab work, etc. Because if you don't if you're not doing that kind of constant therapy, you have what is called a plateau. It's very common among stroke patients. You start stop seeing any improvement for a while. So that, that's been disrupted because I now I only really can write when I'm finished with all of my therapy, which is about 5.30 in the afternoon. But hopefully when things calm down, I'll go back to my old routines. 
Yeah, you mentioned the stroke, which you suffered seven months ago. Has there been a different perspective? Are, are new ideas coming to you because you're looking at light in a different way or you're being forced to do things uh, in a different manner? Well, of course, it's affected me. Um, you know, uh, I mean, one thing, though, is I just don't seem to have as much time as I wanted because I really enjoy just sort of wandering can, the, the, I'm starting my next book and putting together the proposal for it. And I enjoy the process of just kind of wandering through books and relaxing and coming together with the concept. And so the one thing that's kind of disrupted that is I just never have that kind of time or that, that sort of privilege. So I always feel a bit rushed, but also, um, you know, I've had to reassess myself and, and, train myself to be much more patient and it's also affected you know how i look at the world and how i see life and how i see other people and you know some of this will be reflected in my new book but yeah it's definitely definitely altered my perspective you mentioned now not having enough time so instead of doing work you truly love you're, you're now on the phone with me having this conversation <laughs> instead <laughs> well that's you know uh, no of course i enjoy that i mean one thing you have to realize is um, when you've had a stroke like this, is, you know, I could have I could have easily died. It was it was life threatening. And if things came together, that, that that didn't happen. And so I have to look at it this way. Um, you know, I have immense I'm immensely uh, grateful for everything that I've had. And so I was able to finish the book and it came out and being able to talk to people like you and have podcasts. It's, it's a great thing. You know, it, it would be so much worse if I never was able to finish the book or if I had brain damage and I'm not able to write another book. So there's much to be grateful for. And one of that is being able to to connect to my readers and to my audience. Well, I know we're so glad you, you were able to finish the book. I, I truly do believe this is one of the most impactful books I've read of late. And it's one of the gifts, the one of the, the books I've gifted the most. I mean, you're oh, one wow. Yeah, your work is just something that's resonated with me for a long time. So I, I'm always looking forward to your next piece of work. But I really feel like the laws of human nature are just so impactful and mean so much today. I feel like a lot of people are just kind of walking around unaware of the influences around them and how much others can impact them. I mean, uh -huh. were, were the laws of human nature, is this kind of a code book for deciphering people's behavior? Yeah, that was the that was the intention behind it. I mean, um, the book has has several functions. One of them is to make you look at yourself more closely and examine who you are, because I think that to a large extent, we don't know ourselves. We're kind of mysteries. And I explain why we don't really know ourselves and how it's actually a difficult process. The way our brains are configured, it's not easy to actually understand where our emotions come from, why we feel a certain way. Why did our career paths take this direction? Why are we having problems in our relationships? So many mysteries around us, and we're not really paying attention to it. We're not really aware. So the book is really trying to bring awareness to you, the reader, so that you have more consciousness of yourself in your daily life, of why am I doing this? Why am I reacting this way? Why am I getting angry? Why am I frustrated? Why do bad things happen to me? So um, that was one of the functions. And then the other function, probably the most important, is 
being able to understand the people around you on a higher level. Um, you know, normally in our day-to-day -day lives, we tend to be very self-absorbed. We're kind of wrapped in our own thoughts, our own concerns and anxieties. And we, we have to deal, obviously, in the course of a day with dozens of people at work or on the subway or in the family or wherever. And most of the time, we're sleepwalking. We're not really paying attention to people. We think we are. We think we're listening. But really, we're not. And then this manifests itself when bad things happen, when relationships break apart, when you're suddenly fired, when your career seems to be going nowhere, where you can't seem to get anybody interested in your ideas or projects. Then it's kind of clear that something isn't right. But still, you're not making the connection between these bad things and yourself and your lack of awareness of what really motivates people. So um, it's a bit of counterintuitive, but I'm trying to make you aware that as a social animal, the fact that you're not really connecting or understanding the people around you has terrible cascading consequences. It can lead to health issues. It can lead to depression. It can lead to all sorts of, of problems that you're not aware of. And so this ability to understand the people around you should be priority number one. And instead of spending so much time on your phone or on the Internet, you know, immersed in trivia or learning all kinds of facts that aren't important to you, the most important thing in your life are people around you. And you should be giving much more attention to that. So this is a book. It's trying to reorient, or reorient your priorities and give you a, a real clear idea on how to do this, how to understand people on a much deeper level. Yeah, you mentioned the people around us. And a lot of the people around us are, are projecting onto us what they want us to see. So, so how do you uncover what someone's true character is? Well, um, it's not like something you can do in, in one simple step or in two minutes. It's a process. It, it requires a little bit of humility in that you have to ad admit to yourself that you really don't know, even though even your spouse or partner who you've been around with for several years, you have to, you have to first come to terms with the fact that there's people present a front to you. They present, they're smiling, they're pleasant. They don't want to show some of their own thoughts and their own their own frustrations or own their own anger or whatever. So they're always showing you their best light. And you're generally taking that for reality. So you first have to come to terms with the fact that maybe you don't really know these people that you're dealing with the way you think you do. And from that, you can then begin to piece together the pieces of the puzzle. And the puzzle is that I talk about people have a character and their character is something that's deep, deep, deep in their core. The, the word character comes from the ancient Greek meaning to carve. So character is something that's carved very deeply into person. Um, and it stems from their DNA, their genetics, things they can't control. It stems from their early, early experience with their parents and how they were raised their siblings and early relationships with teachers, etc., And it's something that causes people to constantly repeat the same patterns of behavior. If you look around at the people you know, they may proclaim that they want to change, or that they're always looking to improve themselves. But you notice that they tend to fall into patterns. They tend to repeat 
the same thing over and over again. They tend to fall in love with the same types of people. They seem to have this, the same kinds of problems in their work. And that's because they have this character that is sort of governing them, that, that is determining what they do. And they're not in control of it and they're not aware of it. And so you need to pay attention to that core, that character that people have. Some people have a strong character. Some people have a weak character. You have to look at how people are, not just in what they present to you, but how they are in their private life, how they treat their employees. Someone may be very pleasant to you when you're dealing with them, but when the door is closed and they're talking to their assistant or their secretaries, they're extremely harsh and mean. That tells you something about their character. Look at all of the details that people are chronically late. That tells you something about them. You look at how they organize their time, how they organize their desk. You look at, you know, um, just simple things about how they are when they when they play a game. Are they really competitive? Do they hate to lose? You look at how they handle stress. Are they do they suddenly lose all control when they're when they're under stress? You know, in daily life, we can pretend to be sort of adult together people. But the moment that crisis occurs or stress, our character comes out and it shows certain weaknesses. It's also how do people handle power? Sometimes people can be very good as they rise up to the top and they're kind of good to other people and they're, they're, they're good teammates and colleagues. But once they get power, they become tyrants. That shows you something about their character. So you need to pay attention to the signs that indicate that core that I'm talking about. And in my book, I give you all sorts of clues about how to do that. But you're never going to begin this process if you have the arrogance to imagine that you know pe the people you're dealing with. Start from the idea that they're mysteries, that you're not really aware of their character. And before you hire someone, before you partner with a person in business, before you get intimately involved with someone who you perhaps might marry, knowing their character is like the most important thing you can do. It's, it's, you know, your, your tendency will be to be charmed by their appearance, by their, by their resume, by how they talk to you. But the, you'll, you'll find your life will be miserable if you fall for these kinds of appearances that they present. You always want to look behind the, the mask people wear and try and gauge their true character, whether it's strong or whether it's weak. Yeah. One of the quotes around character in the book that I loved is, out of character is often their true character. And you brought up the successful CEO as they rise to power. Maybe they started out as empathetic and could relate to their employees, but then that power consumes them. Did you see this amongst a lot of the, the CEOs, a lot of the titans of business you've studied? Um, yes, I have. I mean, some people um, handle power very well, and then it has the opposite effect. Um, the, the idea came from the story, I mean, I've always had this idea, but from the story of Lyndon Johnson, our, our president, um, after Kennedy was assassinated, but also a senator, a very powerful senator. And as he was rising, and he was extremely ambitious and wanted to become president. As he was rising, he was very charming. He knew how to press people's buttons. They called it the Johnson treatment. He could be very seductive. Um, but then once he got to the top, once he was in control of the Senate, he was the meanest bastard you could ever imagine. He was so tough and he would like humiliate people around him. And you ask the question, 
Well, did, did he suddenly change? Did power corrupt him? No, he was like that. He was charming and, and amenable because he knew that to realize his dreams, he had to be that way. So it's not like people suddenly change when they have power. That doesn't happen. What it does is it reveals who they really are. Sometimes, you know, people who are, who are ambitious, who rise to the top, they know that if they're too aggressive early on, they're going to alienate people. They won't get far. But once they have power, all of the demons come out of the closet. Yes, I've noticed it in people I've read about, in Michael Eisner, who I describe in the book, and the people I've, I've consulted with, and the, my work on the board of directors of American Apparel and CEO there. Um, so I've noticed it. Yeah, it's extremely common phenomenon. Of course, you see the opposite, where you see people who handle power very well. They end up um, treating their employees as well as they were treating people when they were rising to the top. You know, they're, they um, handle stress very well. They're still open to new ideas. You know, in my consulting work, I've noticed the difference. A good sign of character is, do people really want to learn? Do they really want to hear my criticism and change who they are? Or do they just merely want to hear uh, me echo their own thoughts and just sort of affirm, confirm their own self-opinion? That's a sign of a strong or a weak character. And I can say maybe only 10% of leaders in this world are of the strong type who are willing to take criticism, who are still learning from experience, who are open to new ideas, and who will listen to someone who's, who criticizes them. Um, it, it's rarer. It's more usual that people are arrogant and that power has this effect where they think that they're godlike and that everything they think or do is destined for success. So yeah, it's an extremely common phenomenon. You mentioned the 10% who are, who are willing to embrace that and to change. Have you seen that once they change and they embrace that power in a positive way, that they actually become much better CEOs? Well, as I said, power doesn't change you. It simply reveals who you are. So those people who were like that early on, and it wasn't fake, that's they really are inquisitive. They really do want to learn. Their main goal is to actually make something good in the world. Um, you can't really know that about their character until they have power, until it comes out. So you take someone like Johnson on the way up. He was very attentive to people. He was listening. He was open to new ideas. But once he had power, all of that shut off. And so that shows that this was merely a, a, a means for him to get to the top and his real character, he was hiding. So you don't really know until people have positions of power and they have stress and the stresses that come with power. Because as I said, stress will also reveal your character. And you think you might have stress in your life right now, but try running a $50 million business or $100 million business or try leading some team or being a coach of some team, the stress of being on the top, the stresses are immense. And they, and under that pressure, you will, you, you will crack the facade that you present will crack and you will reveal who you are. So those people who maintain their presence of mind, their composure, who, who are able to keep to a strategic line that they, that they decided upon, who aren't always getting emotional and reacting to what people are saying or doing, and who can learn from experience, 
yeah, we see that once they get to power, we it, it reveals itself. So I don't think people change necessarily. They just sort of reveal what's been hidden for so long. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And you mentioned stress. I'm sure the role that you have producing these great books must come with a great deal of stress. You've consulted with many great business people. Is there anything you've seen them do to combat stress? Um, well, um, you can't really combat stress. I mean, trying to combat stress is a problem. Um, stress is not a bad thing. Stress is a good thing. It, it causes the adrenaline to flow, which makes the mind concentrate and focus. Trying to repress the stress that is occurring will only make it worse in the end. You have to kind of embrace that and you have to be willing to accept that you're going to lose some control and that there's going to be some chaos and that you're going to, that you're going to maintain your composure and your presence of mind. So, um, I'd say that the, uh, the thing that I wrote the most relevant on, on this subject is in my book, The 33 Strategies of War. And there's nothing more stressful than being the general on a battlefield where bullets are flying and to see someone like a Napoleon or an Admiral Lord Nelson in the British Naval um, Admiralty and the incredible presence of mind they maintain under stress. And I describe how you can do that, how you maintain your presence of mind how you learn to balance the emotional reactions that you normally have in these moments and not take them too seriously and create some distance from yourself and from the, and from the moment. So in that chapter, I go into very practical uh, explanations of how you can create what I call presence of mind. But the idea that stress is bad is a really, really negative concept in our culture um, and causes all kinds of problems. I have tremendous stress in writing a book, but if I didn't have stress, I wouldn't write them. I wouldn't achieve that. I wouldn't be here talking to you. I would have settled for something very easy, for some hundred page book that's kind of simple and easy so my life could be easy so I could have no stress, on and on and on. People are too weak. They're too much like, like tissue paper. Stress is good for you. It makes you stronger and learn, teaches you how to manage your anxiety. It teaches you how to prioritize. So I would never tell people how you can get rid of stress. You want more stress. You just want to be able to handle it better is what you want. Yeah, people do, do need to, to toughen up. I, I think we've seen that occurring a lot recently. You bring up some great generals. Obviously, you were talking about Lyndon B. Johnson. One of the things I love about your work is, is how you're able to tie in stories throughout history as great examples of what you're discussing. So with, with the book, The Laws of Human Nature, where did the idea and this format come from for you? Um, the format that I've had in all of my books? Yeah. Like how, how, how did that initially come to be that this is how you, you were going to present what you've learned? Well, it started with the 48 Laws of Power, which I began in 1996, more or less. And, you know, um, it was just sort of an organic process. It wasn't like a, a, a simple eureka moment where I go, aha, this is the form of my book. Basically, I'd done a lot of research of ideas about power, and I came up with sort of themes that turned into the 48 chapters of the book. And I had read a lot of stories, things from history. And I'm not somebody, you know, I can, when I'm reading a book, sometimes my attention wanders 
if it's too dry, if it's too analytical. Um, I've always liked fiction. I've always liked stories. I think stories, if they're told well, can often tell you more about a situation than anything, any kind of analytical discussion about it. Um, so the idea in like um, any kind of great book, the moment they start telling you an anecdote or a story to illustrate it, you go, wow, I can understand it on a deeper level. So I decided to incorporate stories early on as a kind of a strategy because I want readers to go into my book. And sometimes, you know, people read the first chapter and they go, ah, and they leave it. I wanted to seduce you into reading my book over and over and over again. And I, so I tell stories. I entertain you. I create some suspense. You're reading a story about someone you don't know why Robert is narrating the story. And then when I interpret it later on, I, I explain to you why. And so um, I wanted to have my chapters not linear, not where you're having to read 30 pages about one thing, but where I break it up into a story and interpretation then some theory then some bullet points about examples of what I'm talking about then the reversal that I always put in the chapters. So it's entertaining and fun, and you're never sitting there kind of wandering around through 30 pages and getting a headache. You know, I hate books like that myself, so I wanted to avoid readers ever having that experience. Yeah, no, and I, I learned so much even about the people you brought up, someone such as Coco Chanel, who I've never done any research in, but it's almost, it's almost a short biography on the people you bring up. So I really do appreciate that. You mentioned reading some fiction. Any fiction you've gone to throughout the years you recommend? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, there's hundreds of, of, of books that have big influence on me. Um, a lot of 19th century novels. My favorite novelist probably is Dostoevsky. Um, I think he's just one of the greatest writers that ever lived. His novels, my favorite is The Possessed, which is absolutely incredible, but also Crime and Punishment. You know, almost everything he wrote is absolutely brilliant. Um, and then, of course, I, I love Flaubert and uh, Madame Bovary and The Sentimental Education. I love Stendhal. Um, then there are modern novelists, I mean, modern, I mean, 20th century, not contemporary people like Proust or Thomas Mann, or even Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright, more contemporary writers. So, um, there are lots of novelists. I mean, I could go on for hours and I'd have to think more deeply about it, but, um, fiction has always been something I've loved and I maintain I, I incorporated that in the laws of human nature because, you know, psychologists can be brilliant when they analyze humans, but some of the most perceptive people that have ever lived are writers, are novelists, because their whole life is about bringing to life certain characters, and they have to get inside the skin. So a man who writes about a woman or a woman who writes about a man has to try and understand male or female psychology, has to understand the person they're writing about. So they develop this empathetic muscle of understanding people, and they become some of the most keen psychologists. So that's why I included a lot of uh, fiction writers in The Laws of Human Nature. A lot of the people who are interested in your work 
it's regards to leadership and, and you've studied great leaders. And I'm curious when you think of great leaders and the different levers they pull for motivating and influencing people, are there any key attributes you think a great leader needs to have? Well, you know, we're, we're generalizing. So it depends on, on what you're leading. Are you leading an army? Are you leading a, a vast bureaucracy? Are you leading a little startup of five people? You know, these are different circumstances. Um, in some places, you need to be a lot tougher and harder and play the harder game. In some places, you need to be a lot softer. But we can make a few generalizations. And I have a chapter in The Laws of Human Nature on the concept of what I call authority. And what I mean by that is normally we humans are a bit rebellious. We don't really believe that someone is a good leader until they prove it to us. We're always a bit skeptical and cynical. And the moment people make a mistake or a leader makes a mistake, we go, aha, he or she, they're not really as good as we thought. And so leaders are in a position where they have to make people um, want to, to follow their lead, to be interested in without having to yell at them, without having to scream at them. Because if you yell and scream and push people, you only create great resentment and it's going to cost you in the end. So we've all noticed the phenomenon that there are people in this world who have authority in that they don't have to say anything. They don't even have to do anything. But they emanate this idea that they are confident, that they, that they know what they're doing. They have power and confidence. And we believe in them and we follow them. And if we make a mistake, we're a little bit more forgiving than, than we normally would be. So what makes a person have this authority? Well, I maintain, oddly enough, there's, there's a degree of humility involved. So a great leader is actually very, very interested in the people he or she leads. You have to learn to individualize your attention so that you don't simply assume that the 40 people in your company, they're all the same. You don't treat them all like one block of underlings that you can push around. You deal with each person as an individual and you tailor what you say and how you motivate them to their particular strengths or weaknesses. A great leader knows how to create a cause, a mission for the group as a whole. This is probably the most important aspect of it because people want to believe that they're working for something greater than just for money. They want to believe that they're doing something for the planet, for other people, that there's some kind of greater vision behind the work that they're doing. Even in anybody working in finance or, or whatever, or a lawyer, they still want to believe that they're tied to some sort of greater cause. And you need to find that. You need to unify the members of your team by creating that cause for them, whatever that might be. Um, you need to be leading from the front. You need to be working as hard as the You don't ask people to do things that you're not willing to do. You know, you're out there working as long hours, you're taking responsibility, you're not sitting in your office and telling people to do all these things that you yourself are never willing to do. So you're leading from the front. That creates the kind of respect that people will have for you. And, you know, you're, you're egalitarian so that, um, you don't, when you punish people, it's, it's the same kind of punishment that everybody gets. You don't play favorites. All of these things play into human nature, as I describe in that chapter. And I try and say, that as a leader, you must realize that people are smiling and nodding their heads and saying, great, I love you. But that's not the reality. 
they're not showing you their true feelings. They're not showing you the moments where they're actually a bit resentful of you or they think that maybe you're not so great. They're playing a game. They're wearing a mask. And if you take this, these smiles and these nods for reality, you're in trouble. So you have to understand that the people you're leading are more skeptical and cynical than you think. And you have to work hard at earning their trust and their respect. And I, you know, I go into greater detail in that chapter about how to do that. But the last thing I'll mention is a great leader has a vision because a group of people are all, all have their own opinions about what's right or wrong. There's only one person, the person on top who sees the whole picture, who understands where the group is headed, who understands, you know, what the overall goals are and has a vision of where to lead the, the, the group. And a person who, who comes up and shows that he or she has this vision automatically creates that sense of authority. But if a leader is kind of just reacting every day to the news cycle, if some people come in and say, here's a great idea, and he or she goes, oh, yeah, that's great, let's, let's change our plan and do that, that, does, that diminishes the, the level of authority that people lose respect. But someone who's almost like a prophet, like Moses or something, who says, this is where we're headed. This is where the company is. This is what we're doing five years from now. Creates in humans a very powerful, powerful response. So to be a great leader, you have to really understand human nature and what really motivates the people that you're leading. Yeah, when you bring up vision, I can't help but think about momentum. And Sun Tzu is a great quote. When an army has the force of momentum, even the timid become brave. When it loses the force of momentum, even the brave become timid. Is this sort of along the lines of what you're referring to with this group feeling and vision? Well, um, yes, that's, that's certainly part of it. That, that's an idea that I used in the, in the war book, once again, um, called the death ground strategy, where you, you build a sense of urgency and desperation in the people you're leading by it's either we, we succeed in this battle or we fail and, and we die. You know, it's the, the idea that when Cortez arrived in Mexico and it was his 400 men against the 5 million men of the Aztecs, what did he do? He burned the ships so that the soldiers couldn't return to Cuba from where they came from. So they had, they had no idea. You could never feel like, oh, at any moment we can just escape and go home because that would ruin, that would diminish their intensity, their focus. He burned the ships. So look, there's no going back. We're here in Mexico. It's either conquer or die. And, you know, he ended up conquering. So it's a powerful motivation device um, that I explain I want you to use in your own life. And I explain how to do that in Chapter 4 of the 33 Strategies of War. But um, great leaders, that's, that's just one arrow in their, in their quiver. Uh, and that's a motivation device of creating a sense of urgency in the people that you lead. But there, there are many others that I discussed. That, that, that's, that's one important aspect, yeah. You just brought up that it was located in Chapter 4 in the 33 Strategies. Do you have every one of your books not memorized, but know specifically <laughs> what chapter pieces are in? Uh, probably most of them. I mean, you could test me if you want. Try me here. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it. I, I'm just, I guess, appreciative of that. And I'm wondering how that comes to be around the idea of tediousness of greatness. And is this just from the amount of hours you've put into the work that you've just 
been able to to accumulate this knowledge around your own work? So you're you're asking me about about the the tedium involved or what? Correct. Is that what you attribute your knowledge of your own work to? Well, um, geez, it's it's my knowledge is is a function of you know the fifty over fifty years of being alive, getting near sixty, and it's hard to put my finger in the river and say where it starts because I had a lot of experience prior to writing books, observing people, reading other material, and absorbing. And then um, now for the books that I write now, you know, I read hundreds and hundreds of books and I've dealt consulting. And and so as I'm writing the books, I'm learning myself and then I'm applying what I learn in my own life. So it's kind of a, a convergence of my research, my experience with people and my putting into practice some of the ideas that I'm writing about. And all of that enriching itself and kind of creating a self-fulfilling dynamic where my knowledge increases. But yeah, there's a lot of tedium involved in that. Um, a lot of detail and a lot of boring work, particularly in the research area. Um, but the research is actually a lot of fun for me. That's The writing is what can get kind of a grind. But when I'm researching, I'm like I'm like having a high because it's so exciting for me to to be learning new things and to be to getting a new idea if i have an idea during a day an idea that excites me and seems original that's that's like a great experience for me so the tedium is more in trying to actually write the book but you know as i say in mastery my fifth book tedium is a good thing if you can't handle tedium and practice and drills and training, then you're going to have a, a hard life. Something I would love to dive deep on is you mentioned during the research process, you almost experience this high when you have a new idea. What does your research process actually look like? And then when you do develop this idea, how do you expand upon it? My research process is quite simple. I, um, I go through hundreds of books to write a book. I think for this loss of human nature, I read well over 300. But it starts out slowly. I have ideas about, um, you know, where to start and certain writers and I read them and then that leads links in a chain to other writers, other books, and it kind of grows organically and gains momentum. And as I'm reading a book, I'm taking notes in the margins, something, someone like uh, some quote of Nietzsche and I go, wow, that really makes me think differently. That puts a new angle on it. And I make a note in the, in the column in the margin about that. And then if it sparks an idea for my book, I write that down. Um, I'm taking note cards, as people probably know, my process is I research a book, I read it, and then maybe a month later I go back to it and I take all of my underlining and notes inside and put them on cards. And each card is, is labeled as to like a, a theme or a category. And then I take these cards and I organize them into themes. So when I say I have an idea, of course, it's never really original because they're sparked by something I've read. Yeah, it might be that I'm in the shower and I suddenly go, wow, wait, this is way, this is an idea that I never thought of. Um, and so, you know, maybe there are some things that are slightly original, but really most things 
are sparked by what other people have thought. That's how human progress and that's how ideas evolve. Um, but, uh, you know, so I never want to lose things because the ability to take 300 or 400 books, lots of material and write one book out of it requires a lot of organization because it could get very chaotic. And if the reader has the feeling that Robert doesn't really know what he's doing, he's kind of losing himself. He's kind of wandering or there's no, you know, there's too much material. I don't want the reader to think about that. I want the reader to think Robert is on top of all of this. He has organized it. He has organized it so well that I don't even see how well it's organized. I just enjoy reading it. That requires a lot of organization. So I think a lot of books and even projects or films or whatever succeed or fail because of things no one ever sees. It has to do with the level of organization and structure that the creator puts into the project. And a lot of people are bored by organizing material, by structuring their screenplay, by coming up with a detailed business plan. But I want you to think of that as being the probably the, one of the most creative aspects of any kind of work. That's where something will either sink or swim, is how well you've organized your thoughts. Do you have a specific example? You mentioned the note cards. So what do you do specifically to keep that so organized with that amount of information that you've consumed to be able to articulate it clearly on the paper for your readers? Well, um, you know, if I'm reading a biography, um, let's say I read about Pericles, the great Athenian statesman. He's the the protagonist of the first chapter in The Laws of Human Nature. It's a 300-page book. I'm underlining it. I'm seeing exciting things. I love reading about ancient Greece, by the way. And so um, then I go back and put that on cards, and I notice there are themes here. One of the main themes is how rational he was and how he was able to maintain his own composure under great amounts of stress, as we discussed earlier. So I have a card about his rationality, which ended up being a chapter in the book. In other areas, it was about how he motivated the Athenians to want to follow him. So there was great stuff about authority. It was He was a master motivator. So each little bit of, of interesting anecdote or salient feature that shows me Pericles' character and who he is, I create a card for. And I'm looking to bring these characters to life. So how I... How I um, attack a biography is different how, than I, how I attack a book by a psychologist or neuroscientist. When I'm reading a biography, my goal is to figure out what makes this person tick and how I can bring him or her to life for the reader to get inside, to bring the living Pericles before you so you can see him in action and make him very human. Because it's about a book about human nature and I have to make these people come to life like any fiction writer. When I'm reading something by a neuroscientist, I'm trying to figure out, what does this say about who we are? What is this, the fact that the emotion, emotional part of the brain is processed in a very different part than our logic and our reasoning powers in the frontal cortex, that these two parts of the brain aren't connected. Well, all sorts of neuroscientists have written great things about that, and about what that says about us, 
But I wanted to bring that into the context of something a little broader about what it says about human nature and how it is that we don't really know ourselves. So each book I treat differently depending on what I'm trying to get out of it. But um, in all cases, I'm looking for little nuggets for things that make my eyes open wide and go, wow, that's interesting. Readers are going to really love that. Wow, I never thought of that. If I can have enough moments like that in a book, then it's a success. And I gauge a book by how many cards it generates. If a book is 800 pages and it generates three cards, that means I hated it. If it's if it's a 300-page book and it generated 40 cards, that means it was absolutely brilliant. And there, there I have examples of that. Have you ever published any of your cards or your notes? Well, I know people have taken pictures of them. And I know Ryan Holiday, who probably people out there are familiar with, he's used my same system and he... He took pictures of them, and I think he posted pictures of them. But it's really quite boring, except it's colorful because it's all color-coordinated. But if you come to my office and you see it, you probably think Robert Greene is a madman. If he wasn't writing books, he would be like schizophrenic and and in a mental institution, writing all of these with his little scrawly handwriting on thousands of note cards. He's insane. Why doesn't he use a computer? But fortunately, I'm successful enough that I'm not locked up. But that probably would have been my fate if I hadn't written these books. Yeah, I'm not sure if talking about this is boring for you, but you mentioned when you're doing your research, your eyes will light up. And and mine are right now because I'm truly fascinated by your process. You mentioned ancient Greek history. Are there any books around ancient Greek history you would highly recommend? Oh, dear. Um yeah, hundreds of them. Um, there was a, the book uh, that I read for this one. I, I forget the exact title. It's something about the irrational in ancient Greek thought or something, something to that effect, which is a great book. Um, I use that quite a bit. I forget the name of the writer. It's in the bibliography. Um, there's, you know, obviously reading the source material itself like Thucydides. Thucydides is probably my fav- one of my favorite Greek writers. He brings ancient Greek to life, and he had stuff about Pericles. And um, when I studied ancient Greek in college, I loved reading Lysias, who was a lawyer. And it's really kind of boring. But if you read the, it's just lawsuits in ancient Greece and Lysias' arguments for his clients. But boy, does it teach you about daily life in ancient Greece. I love reading books that teach you about the daily life, how people actually lived. I have biographies of Alcibiades here. It's in French. It's on my bookshelf that I really enjoy. Um, Gosh, there are all sorts of of great books about ancient Greece. I could go on and on and on. Yeah, no, I I just wanted to to see what comes front of mind for you around that subject. It's one I'm interested in. So I appreciate you, you opening up and sharing that. A few minutes ago, you mentioned Ryan Holiday, and he's someone who essentially was an apprentice under you. And I feel like we don't see apprenticeship enough these days. Do you have a similar feeling around that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a concept that comes from from medieval times where, where we humans actually worked with our hands as opposed to now. And to learn a craft required that someone apprenticed with a master and watched him and 
uh, and followed his movements and spent seven years as an apprentice and then was given a certificate or initiated into the stage of being a journeyman. And then after 15 years or so, was then considered a master at the craft, on and on. It's a deeply, um, it, it plays into something in human nature in that um, it often takes seven, ten years to, to learn something, the old 10,000 hours rule. And it plays into the fact that we learn better when we're actually engaging with a person in the flesh as opposed to virtually, where we're actually following them, where we're absorbing their, their physical energy, where we're seeing how they operate in person. And they're able to tell us things in person about who we are and about our strengths and weaknesses. So the apprentice-master relationship plays into all the strengths of human nature. It's, it's, it's really how our brains were designed to learn by following someone else. And I maintain it's the quickest way to mastering something because the person who's instructing you has a lot of experience and they can show you what you need to focus on, what you need to avoid. It's a very powerful, powerful relationship, but it's very hard to figure out how to do it in the world today. So if you're somebody who wants to get into business or, or some creative field, how do I find a master to, to, to teach me this? How can I become an apprentice? It's not easy because our culture doesn't make it easy. And in my book, Mastery, uh, which I would you know advise readers to look at, I have a chapter on apprenticeship and on a, on a chapter on how to find a mentor in this world. It's like, it's like you get to choose your second parent. It's, it's a person who will actually be kind of like a, a parent figure for you. And you need to make a really good choice about that. And it's not easy to find a, a mentor in this world, but it's, it's extremely worth go, trying the process. And, you know, as someone who has been a mentor for other people, it's very satisfying to, to instruct people who are wanting to learn a craft. It's very satisfying. It's, it is like being a father figure. So people want to serve as a mentor. You'd be surprised. It's just how do you find them and how do you approach them? And if readers are interested, I, I really direct you towards, towards chapters uh, two and three in Mastery. Yeah, no, Mastery was, like all, all six of your books, one that I really enjoyed. You do a great job talking about apprenticeship in that book. I'm also interested, what about the people before the step of even searching out a master? Maybe they need some more direction. How do you recommend them organizing their thoughts into what they might be really great at someday? Well, uh, I wrote about that in Mastery and in the new book. Um, it's, it's what I call discovering your life's task or what your, your calling in life is or the purpose, why you were born, what is it that makes you different or unique. And it's an elaborate process that is hard to describe simply in a couple minutes. But basically, it's a matter of figuring out what makes you unique, what excites you, what is something that you're naturally drawn towards? Uh, there's a book by Howard Gardner, The Five Frames of Mind, and he shows that there are five forms of intelligence, you know, a kinetic, which has to do with physical motion, and there's mathematical, which has to do with patterns, and there's a social um, form of intelligence, on and on and on. And each of them are just as valid as the other. 
So a person who's good at kinetics, which means movement, dance, or sports, is just as much a form of intelligence as an Einstein, um, and is just as valid. And you, you have one of these forms of intelligence. The brain generally has one of them that dominates. You know, me, it's words and language, which is one of the forms of intelligence. It has to do just simply with language. Um, so you need to know yourself, know your, your form of intelligence, what you're naturally drawn to, what you don't like, what, what, what your likes are and dislikes, who you are as an individual in the deepest sense. You know, must know um, what you find um, subjects that, that just excite you, that make your eyes you're very curious about and you want to read more about. And if you're young enough, you take that self-awareness and you, you, you go on a journey and you try different jobs or career paths that kind of align with what you love and you find out what you're really good at and you hone this and you develop skills and then, and, and you, and you go through that apprenticeship. If you're in your thirties and forties, it's a more difficult process, but it's not impossible. And in mastery, I describe how you can get back to that calling in life, even when you're in your forties and you've made some wrong turns. But the key is you won't, <coughs> you won't get there. If you don't have self-awareness, if you're not keyed into what makes you unique, into the skills, the experience, the inclinations that have marked you since you were a child and separates you from other people, don't be afraid of what makes you strange and weird. Your weirdness is your strength. Normally, you're afraid of standing out from the crowd. You want to fit in. You want everybody to think you're just like them. But actually, what makes you stand out, what makes you weird what makes you not fit into the group is your strength. And you must not run away from that, which is often what happens to us when we're younger. So it's a process, but those are some of the things that I would I would highlight. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I just have two more questions for you. And it's along the lines of your own journey. And you said, know yourself. You mentioned that you knew you wanted to be a writer from a very early age, but it kind of took you a while to get there. What was the narrative like in your head when you didn't have much direction? Did you always think in the end you would turn out to be a best-selling author? Oh, I had moments of doubt. And then I had moments of megalomania and dreams and thinking, wow, I'm going to be famous, successful. And then and then I would have moments of, humil of um, humility and realize, boy, I'm kind of failing in life. I'd get depressed. It was up and down, up and down. But in the long scheme of things, I obviously had faith and confidence because I never gave up. I kept trying and trying and trying. I knew that somehow if I found the right form of writing, it would all kind of click together. So um, I think from very early on, I had lots of moments of doubt and depression, but they passed. And I had the inner strength to know that I, I knew that there was something in me that was different that was worth bringing out, just how do I find that? But having that faith and that sense of, you know, that idea that, you know, I was destined for something probably saved me from, you know, committing suicide or, or just giving up. So uh, I think it's a very important process that people know who they are, know what they were destined for, and feel that, that 
somehow, if they put get it together, if they get enough skills like I accumulated with all my writing jobs, that something will happen, something will click. But you need, you know, that kind of faith is actually the dividing line between success and failure. Because I could have easily given up. I had so much failure in my life as a, as a journalist, as a screenwriter, as a novelist. You know, I, I'd been rejected. I can't tell you how many times. But, you know, it's not just persistence, but it's this belief that you're, you're, you were meant for something and that it will eventually come together. I think that was what was my thought process. That last two minutes is, is something I'm going to rewind and, and listen to again. That really resonates. So thanks for sharing with that. The final, yeah, the final thing you you've studied so many people. You've had such an interesting journey yourself. I'm interested. What's the most unique thing someone did to leave an impression on you? Well, um, you know, I, I don't know. I've, it's 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 it, there's so many people that I've encountered. Um, in 1995, I was in Italy, uh, on one of my 80 different jobs before I made it as a writer, a friend of mine had invited me over, they were starting a new school there and he wanted me to help in, in kind of putting together the curriculum, etc. And it was kind of a disaster. Everything was sort of going wrong. It was all very political and ugly. I'll even know that we were in Italy and Italy is beautiful and we were, I was still having a great time. And there was a man there named Joost Elfers, who was a book packager, who was an older man. And he and I kind of got along. I uh, really enjoyed talking to him. And one day we were walking in Venice, Italy. And he said, Robert, do you have any ideas for books? And I came sort of improvised what ended up turning into the 48 Laws of Power. And his eyes lit up and he goes, I could tell. So I gave him some other book ideas and he wasn't so excited, but he got really excited about this. And he did something that, you know, is pretty damn unique. I don't know anybody else that can say that is he said, if I write the treatment and he likes it, he will pay me to live. He'll give me a monthly, a very handsome monthly salary to write the book. And, um, oh, wow, that's, you know, it seems generous, but in the end, of course, the money he paid me was subtracted from the advance we got. But he was taking a, a risk because it could easily have been a failure. And here he was just subsidizing someone who would never get it together. But he took a gamble. He showed amazing faith in me and belief. And, you know, money at that point was a terrible issue for me because I could never take time off to do anything creative because I always had to earn money to just pay my bills. And here he was saying, I'll be like your Medici. I will pay you to live comfortably while you write the book and we'll see what happens from there. Now it ended up being great for him. He made a lot of money in our relationship, but he never, he had no idea about that. And so that confidence he had in me, um, had a very powerful effect on, on what ended up happening. And I don't think anyone has ever done, I never, at least up till then, nobody had ever done that for me. My life had been kind of hard. So that stands out as probably one of the most unique things anyone has ever done. I mean, there are others, but I would definitely indicate that one. 
Well, that belief in you led to the 48 laws of power, the art of seduction, the 33 strategies of war, the 50th law, which you did with 50 Cent, Mastery, and then your newest book, The Laws of Human Nature. You mentioned you're already working on another book. Are you able to give us an idea of what that might be about? Well, it's a little hard to describe. Um, it's, you know, each of my books tend to come out of a chapter of, the, of, of, of a previous book. And this one is probably chapter 18, which has to do with death and mortality, which is something I've had to face. But I, I'm trying to open up people's minds to an experience that I call the sublime, which is um, thoughts and experiences. What's going on here? I'm sorry. Somebody at my door. Oh, anyway, um, I'm trying to open people's minds. Excuse me here. Um, I think people are too, um, are missing a sense, almost sort of a sense of religion without God. Like what is greater than us? What draws us outside of ourselves? So in mastery or in writing a book, um, I describe that feeling that you have when you create something, you feel almost like you've become another person that something has come out of you that you didn't even realize where it came from. And these moments when you're drawn outside of yourself, whether you're connecting to the people around you, or you're connecting deeply to your book, or you're connecting deeply to life, and you're not so self-absorbed, I think are extremely powerful moments. And I call them the sublime. Uh, Abraham Maslow called them peak experiences. And once you have them, they change your life. They change how you think, how you feel. And they excite you and motivate you. And you're, you're, you, you want to have them over and over and over again. And I believe people are trapped too much in, in, in the banality of their lives, in the day-to-day -day, um, survival mode, and in what the media presents. And they're not having these sort of larger thoughts about the awesomeness of, of life and, and, and sort of how we were when we were children. And everything sort of struck us as strange and marvelous. So this is a this is a strange book. It's a different, but it's sort of trying to spark your own creativity and your own sense of wonder and bring back some of that childhood intensity. And it's actually a very practical book on how to realize this in your everyday life. But uh, it's what I call the sublime, and I'm going to explain it in very practical terms even in terms of neuroscience and what happens to the brain when we have these experiences. Because I believe we live in times where there's so much around us that is truly sublime, particularly things that we're learning through science and technology, but we're just not allowing that to be part of our daily life, our daily experience. So that's sort of the book that I'm working on now. Well, you certainly sparked my interest with that. I, I can't wait to see that. Knowing your work and the amount of time it takes, I'm sure we've got a couple of years before we get to see that, though. Yeah. Robert Greene, you, your work's something I, I've enjoyed throughout the years. Where can the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, where, where can they find out more? Where can they pick up your stuff? Well, my original website is still where you get, get the most information. It's power, seduction, and war. The and is spelled out powerseductionandwar.com. And from there, you will get links to the 50th Law, to Mastery, and to the new book, and to all my, all my platforms, Instagram and Twitter, etc. Well, Robert Green, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I'm wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you... Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.